Saturday the 4th of March, 1967. When I left, I took the Piccadilly line to Holloway Road and popped into a little pissoir, just four pisses. It was dark because somebody had taken the bulb away. There were three figures pissing. I had a piss, and as my eyes became used to the gloom, I saw that only one of the figures was worth having. A labouring type, big, with cropped hair, and as far as I could see, wearing jeans and a dark, short coat. I put my hand down and felt his cock. He immediately started playing with mine. The youngish man with fair hair standing back against the wall went into the vacant place. I unbuttoned the top of my jeans and loosened my belt in order to allow the labourer free rein with my balls. The man next to me began to feel my bum. At this point, a fifth man entered. Nobody moved. It was dark. Just a little light spilt into the place from the street, not enough to see immediately. The little pissoir under the bridge had become the scene of a frenzied homosexual saturnalia. No more than two feet away, the citizens of Holloway Road moved about their ordinary business. I came, squirting cum into the bearded man's mouth, and quickly pulled up my jeans. As I was about to leave, I heard the bearded man hissing quietly. I suck people off. Who wants his cock sucked? When I left, the labourer was shoving his cock into the man's mouth to keep him quiet. I caught the bus home. On December 20th, 1966, Jordan began keeping a diary that he maintained for the final eight months of his life. He did so at the behest of his agent, Peggy Ramsey, who thought he could write something a la André Gide that the publishers would jump at. Orton, however, knew if he were to write honestly about his life and regular sexual adventures such as the one you just heard, the book wouldn't be publishable in Britain where homosexuality was still illegal. But to hell with them. Orton found the subject, his life, and a form, the diary, that suited him perhaps even better than the fictions he wrote for theater. The diaries, which he titled The Diary of a Somebody, a nod to the Grossmith brothers' comic novel Diary of a Nobody, are in many ways Orton the writer at his very best. He uses his pen like a... like a knife. Yeah, that's it. Pen like a knife. To slice up everything around him, then displays the ridiculous little morsels on plates dressed richly in irony and cynicism. The result is hilarious. That is, with a major caveat that we'll address in episode 7. The diaries aren't, as we'll soon see, a truly candid account of Wharton's hopes and fears, but they are frank about what Joe was doing in a society that told him to hide who he was. The bluntness of the diaries is the same quality that makes Joe's comedy so effective, it also makes for some tough reading when it comes to his take on women, who he depicts as untrustworthy, stupid, relentless... Wait, 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 wait. That's, that's all true. But who's going to stand up for booksellers? Listen to this. Wednesday the 18th of January. Went to a gathering of London booksellers tonight. I'd hoped to get a meal. Instead, there were plates of horrible mini sandwiches and glass cups full of shrimpy things. I was very disappointed, as I was hungry. The party of booksellers appeared to be composed of grossly fat youngish men, teenage girls, and a female dwarf. Yeah, I take umbrage with that. In the US, at least, most youngish booksellers I know are malnourished and fueled almost exclusively by excessive amounts of coffee, alcohol, nicotine, and self-loathing. And shrimpy things don't really factor into it. Nor teenagers. They don't set foot in bookstores. 
My name is Corey Eastwood, and I'm a writer and bookseller who would happily accept an invitation to a gathering of London booksellers. And I'm Santiago Lemoyne, a writer and bookseller, and although I love mini sandwiches and cups full of shrimpy things, I generally hate hanging out with booksellers. So I'll pass on the gathering. Thank you very much. And I'm Ramona Stout, and after eight hours here in the Herbster Studios, I think I can safely say that I hate hanging out with booksellers. I also feel the need to defend teenage girls. My daughter loves a good bookstore. Anyway, this is Penknife, a podcast about writers who may or may not have written about crime, but who definitely committed it. Jordan's diaries begin in December of 1966 and chronicle the death of his mother, the success of loot, the writing of the film Up Against It, and his final play, What the Butler Saw. They also cover his sex tourism trips to North Africa and, among other things, the breakdown of his relationship with Kenneth Halliwell. And not only do they chronicle that breakdown, but they help to manufacture it as well. It's clear that Joe wrote the diaries with one eye toward future publication, perhaps in a more tolerant, less homophobic future. It took 20 years, but in 1986, the diaries were finally published and celebrated. And it's equally clear that at some point, his primary audience became not his future readers, but his partner, Kenneth Halliwell, who was most definitely reading the diaries behind Joe's back. And because Joe was aware of this, he used the diaries as a way to tell Kenneth that which he couldn't actually speak to him. So that's the reality. And that's why the diaries turn out to be a very, very complicated prop in the story. It, they, the diaries really are the third person in the room. This is Orton's biographer, John Lahr, explaining the role the diaries played in their relationship. They were strategic. Not only did they, they were account of Orton's homosexual uh, you know, trolling, which Hallowell disliked, and an account of their fights. They were written in a room 16 by 12 on a desk, only one object in the room, the desk, and placed unlocked in a drawer with a man who was living on his own most of the time as Orton was out. They were there to be read. And they were, I think, a way of maneuvering a distance between Orton and Hallowell. In other words, I think it was Orton absolutely could not write in, with with the, the emotional scenes and attacks, because they are attacks, envious attacks, on him and his inner world. At the same time, uh, he was loyal to this person who had essentially educated him, saved him, invented him to some degree. Uh, I, and I don't think he wanted to entirely leave Hallowell. I think he wanted to simply negotiate a sort of distance, which may have led, as it sometimes does in any relationship, to separation or not. But I think that's what was going on. And he couldn't, I mean, he couldn't figure out a way to negotiate that because it, it seemed to be unnegotiable in their relationship. So to a certain extent, in their argument, they were both right and both wrong. I mean, it was, it was a, a terrible, that's what's so tragic about the, about the uh, relationship. But it wasn't always tragic. 
In fact, 1967 begins on a note of genuine optimism for both Orton and Halliwell. That January, as Joe works on What the Butler Saw, Luke wins the Evening Standard Award for Best Play, which is the British version of the Tonys, and Kenneth, after getting some positive feedback on his collages, decides to try and make it as a collage artist. To get started, Joe helps Kenneth carry his collages to an art dealer's shop on King's Road in Chelsea. Joe describes one of them as a macabre Venus made of bits of fingers and mouths on a background which looked like a crumbling tube station wall, and another as a bull made of human hair leaping around in a sandpit and charging with three human eyes. The art dealer claims to like the collages, but his plan to sell them is to put them in a basement that Orton describes as musty and evil-smelling. But before they're ready for display, the dealer tells Kenneth that they could use frames and a bit of varnish. Kenneth eagerly agrees and tells the dealer that he'll start by framing 15 of them. This is not quite what the dealer wants to hear, and he tries to temper Kenneth's expectations by saying essentially, Easy does it, cowboy. We still don't know if we'll be able to sell one, nonetheless 15. Hmm. Reminds me of the guy who walks into the bookshop with a box full of his scenes or <clears throat> his self-published book. As independent booksellers, sure, we want to support small presses. So we'll basically say yes to all comers, no matter how poorly written or designed your book is. We'd only reject it if the title was, say, Chicken Soup for the Fascist Soul or Misogyny for Dummies. Although I guess that if you hide your Holocaust denial or your insult manifesto inside the text, we'd take it anyway, because the truth is we're probably not even going to open your book. Zines, they occasionally sell. But self-published books? Fuck me. Speak of a tough sell. So, note to listeners. If you walk into a bookshop and the bookseller is nice enough to offer you space on their shelves for your book, please provide them with a maximum of three copies. Any more than that is an imposition. Yeah. The person that comes in with 15 is a completely different breed from the nice people that politely ask if you'll stock a couple copies of their book or zine. The guy, almost always a guy, that comes in with 15 copies of his self-published fantasy novel is nine times out of ten going to act as if he's doing you a favor. Always. It's like, listen, I'll start you with 15 for now, but don't worry, I can come back in a week or two when you want more. I was also thinking you could do a display in the window and maybe another one there on the main table. They'll probably sell well there. <laughs> well, Kenneth isn't completely being that guy because he's not deluded enough to think his collages are going to be a smash hit. By the end of March, when 20 of them are finally hung in the subterranean gallery space, Kenneth isn't very optimistic. He says, As though anybody will go see the pictures hung at the wrong end of King's Road. In this estimation, he turns out to be right. Whether or not anybody goes to see them, the fact is... No one buys any. Just like the self-published fantasy novels. Right. But what's important here is that this is essentially the end of Kenneth's fantasy that he's going to be a successful artist. Fifteen years earlier, he gave up his dreams of being an actor. And after his last play was rejected by Orton's agent, Peggy Ramsey, in 1966, he's, for all intents and purposes, given up on writing. Now, his collage art has failed, and he's officially an artist without art. And what, pray tell, is an artist without art? This is the existential question Halliwell's asking himself that late winter of 67. And it's here that Orton's diaries start to record fights with Halliwell, and here that Halliwell emerges from the rather innocuous background role he's been playing in the diary entries thus far, to that of someone who's clearly becoming a problem in Joe's life. Increasingly, through late March, April, and May, Kenneth is even more self-pitying. He goes days at a time without eating and wallows in depression. 
On April 2nd, Orton writes, As Kenneth has decided to go on hunger strike, I shall now have to get all my own meals. This doesn't worry me particularly, except that it means we're starting to live quite separate lives. And it's true. Their lives are heading in completely opposite directions. A week after leaving the collages in the King's Road basement, Orton gets word that he's been chosen by the Beatles to rewrite the screenplay for what's to be their next film, After a Hard Day's Night and Help. Joe tries to play down his enthusiasm, play it cool, especially with the Beatles. But shit, even Joe Orton, who has hardly a single word of praise for any writer who isn't named Joe Orton, can't help but be excited. It's the Fab Four. But when Orton shows up at the Beatles manager Brian Epstein's office for his appointment to seal the deal, Epstein bails. Sure, Joe could easily come back another day, but he doesn't want to look like the kind of man on whom one can cancel without consequence. No, he might not be Beatles-level important, but damn it, Joe Orton is a somebody. So he makes a stink to the assistant and Epstein himself emerges from his office. As Orton recounts, I'd imagined Epstein to be florid, Jewish, dark-haired, and overbearing. Instead, I was face-to-face with a mousy-haired, slight young man, washed out in a way. He had a suburban accent. Could you meet Paul and me for dinner tonight, he said. We do want to have the pleasure of talking to you. I have a theatre engagement tonight, I replied, by now sulky and unhelpful. Could I send a car to fetch you after the show? I didn't much relish the idea, but agreed, and, after a lot of polite flim-flammery, left almost tripping over the carpet and crashing into the secretary, who gave a squeal of surprise as I hurtled past her. This I never mentioned when retelling the story. I always end on a note of hurt dignity. Later, he arrives at Epstein's house in Belgravia and is greeted by a butler for the first time in his life. He took me into a room and said in a loud voice, Mr. Orton. Everybody looked up and stood to their feet. I was introduced to one or two people and Paul McCartney. He was just as the photographs, only he'd grown a moustache. His hair was shorter too. He was playing the latest Beatles recording, Penny Lane. I liked it very much. Then he played the other side, strawberry something. I didn't like this as much. We talked intermittently. The only thing I get from the theatre, Paul M said, is a sore arse. <laughs> he said Lute was the only play he hadn't wanted to leave before the end. Later, we talked of drugs, of mushrooms which give hallucinations, like LSD. The drug, not the money, I said. We talked of tattoos, and after one or two veiled references, marijuana. I said I'd smoked in Morocco. The atmosphere relaxed a little. That's great on so many levels. The nonchalant way he writes strawberry something, having no idea how close he was to music history, or knowing and not caring. And how cute is it that he thought the subject of marijuana needed to be veiled in innuendo? As far as being a playwright goes, you don't really get more successful than this. Young, handsome, wealthy, and writing a movie for the Beatles. Famous, but not so famous that you can't walk down the street without being thronged. Not a bad life at all. Pretty damn good. But it's not all penny lanes and strawberry somethings. Things at home are rough and getting rougher. 
Kenneth regularly threatens suicide and arguments between them continue in Joe's words spasmodically, breaking out like sudden flames on a dying fire. But then Kenneth isn't the only problem. In early March, he sent the Beatles the script, now titled Up Against It, but three weeks have passed with nothing but radio silence. Which is really no surprise when you consider that when they made the initial agreement, the producer had told them that the boys shouldn't be made to do anything in the film that would reflect badly on them. Orton agreed, but wrote, I hadn't the heart to tell him that the boys in my script have been caught in flagrante, become involved in dubious political activity, dressed as women, committed murder, been put in prison, and committed adultery. The script is eventually returned without comment, just a no. No explanation as to why. Orton blames it on Epstein. He's an amateur and a fool. He isn't equipped to judge the quality of a script. Hasn't the courage to say no. He's a thoroughly weak, flaccid type. Epstein, who was also gay, would live to see the legalisation of homosexuality in 67. But like Orton, he wouldn't live long. On August 27th, 1967, just over two weeks after Orton's death, Brian Epstein would overdose and die in the same Belgravia house where Orton and McCartney had talked about acid and tattoos. Sunday the 30th of April. When we got home, we talked about ourselves and our relationship. I think it's bad that we lie in each other's pockets 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. When I'm away, Kenneth does nothing, meets nobody. What's to be done? He's now taking tranquilizers to calm his nerves. I need an affair with someone, he says. He says I'm no good, I'm only interested in physical sex, not love. All you need, I said, is some field of interest outside of me. Monday the 1st of May. Kenneth keeps saying he will commit suicide. He says you'll learn then, won't you? And what will you be like without me? Tuesday the 2nd of May. We were in the middle of talks of suicide, and Kenneth said, you'll have to face up to the world one day, and I'm disgusted by all this immorality. After a particularly sharp outburst alarmed me by saying, homosexuals disgust me. I didn't attempt to fathom this one out. He said he was going to kill himself. I've led a dreadful, unhappy life, he said. I'm pathetic. I can't go on suffering like this. Friday the 5th of May. When I got back home, Kenneth H. was in such a rage. He'd written in large letters on the wall, Joe Orton is a spineless twat. He sulked for a while and then came round. He'd been to the doctors and got 400 Valium tablets. Later, we took two each and had an amazing sexual session. I decided that I'd fuck him, but it didn't work out. I'm not sure what the block is, I said. I can fuck other people perfectly well, but up to now, I can't fuck you. This is something quite strange. Orton and Halliwell spend May and June of 67 in Tangier, where they stay in the same palatial apartment where Tennessee Williams wrote Suddenly Last Summer. But unlike Tennessee, aside from dutifully keeping his journals, Orton doesn't do much writing. Hedonism is the order of the day, or hash and bum, as Joe would have put it, and Joe will spend much of his time trying to master the perfect hash cake and having as much sex, almost all of which he pays for, as is humanly possible. 
while Halliwell also enjoys the hash, especially when he mixes it with Valium or Librium to blot out his anxiety, sex is a different matter. He does occasionally hire one of the bevy of teenagers Joe always has around for a handjob or a shag, but it's clear that nonstop sex just isn't for Ken the way it is for Joe. In fact, Kenneth spends much of the beginning of the trip trying to talk Joe out of sleeping with everyone he can find. Ostensibly, his reason is the same one he used when discouraging Joe from cottaging. These strangers might be dangerous, you have to be careful. Just looking out for Joe's safety, which has nothing to do with jealousy. Yeah, it really seems like it's the case of one of those open relationships where both partners agree to it, but then the one who's not that into it decides he's got to try to sleep around a bit because his partner is fucking everything that moves. Yeah, like Kenneth would have preferred monogamy or something closer to it. After a few weeks, though, he begins to lighten up and relax a bit. Ah, so he comes around to the old hash and bum. Sort of, yeah, but if Kenneth is happy in Tangier, he definitely isn't happy in the same way Joe is. The journal entry we ended the last show with, in which Joe and Ken talk about how good they're feeling and how worried they are that it won't last, is worth returning to. Joe writes... To be young, good-looking, healthy, famous, comparatively rich and happy is surely going against nature. And when to the above list one adds that daily I have the company of beautiful 15-year-old boys who find, for a small fee, fucking with me a delightful sensation, no man can want for more. Crimes of passion will be a disaster, Kenneth said. That will be the scapegoat. We must sacrifice crimes of passion in order that we may be spared a disaster more intolerable. Crimes of Passion is the double bill of reworked versions of his radio play The Roughing on the Stair and a TV play called Erpingham Camp, said to be performed on stage in London that June. Now, aside from the morbid irony about the show being called Crimes of Passion, and if you don't already get it, the irony will soon be explained, the thing that stands out for me here is how Joe's description of the happiness he's apparently sharing with Kenneth doesn't really include Kenneth. Joe writes about being young. Well, he's 34, but Kenneth's about to turn my age, 41. And young is not one of the first, nor even last adjectives that would come to mind when describing you. <laughs> Thanks, Santi. Joe also writes about how good-looking he is. Now, beauty is subjective, but Kenneth was always very self-conscious about his looks, particularly his baldness. Yeah, but I think the Kenneth being ugly narrative is a bit of a stretch. An ugly personality, perhaps, but I would encourage everyone to go check out this photo we found and posted to our Instagram of the two of them and decide who's more handsome. So he might have been handsome, but healthy? Mm. Kenneth was a massive hypochondriac. And even in Tangier, he was always nursing boils and complaining of chest pains and random illnesses. Famous and comparatively rich? No fame for Ken, nor any recognition at all. Rich, yes, but it was Joe's money. Happy? Well, he was sitting there next to Joe telling him how happy he was, but it was obviously just one of those short-lived spasms of the old happy muscle. Even in their favorite place in the world, Tangier, kind of threatened suicide a number of times. And here comes the biggest one of all. If you're on vacation, taking in the sun on a breezy beach, feeling great about your lot in life and discussing it with your partner, wouldn't your litany of things to feel happy about also include the love you feel for that partner? Instead, Joe mentions the teenagers he's paying to have sex with him. When Kenneth lashed out in that journal entry and screamed, Homosexuals disgust me! He was obviously expressing some internalized homophobia. But more so, he was attacking Joe's promiscuity. 
Throughout this last year, as Joe's diary entries, perhaps deliberately to piss Kenneth off, become increasingly focused on sex, Kenneth becomes more and more obsessed with the fact that he's not the object of Joe's sexual desire. None of this means that Joe no longer loved Kenneth, but it does seem to verify Kenneth's fear that Joe just wasn't really seeing him anymore. He was so wrapped up in his own shiny image that he was blind to the great distance opening up between him and his partner. Tuesday the 27th of June. Kenneth became violently angry and attacked me, hitting me about the head and knocking my pen from my hand. And when we get back to London, he said, we're finished. This is the end. I'd heard this so often. I wonder you didn't add, I'm going back to mother, I said wearily. That's the kind of line which makes your plays ultimately worthless, he said. It went on and on until I put out the light. He slammed the door and went to bed. In an interview published that summer, Joe says that he works better when someone else is wandering around the apartment, but, he claims, it's not fair on the other person. Ah, yes, I'm the same. I always do my best writing when someone's lurking behind me, occasionally whacking me in the head. It's a common trick of the trade for writers, you know. You always see it in those clickbait articles for how to be a great novelist. It's like, one, write what you know. Two, write every day. Three, avoid the passive voice and adverbs. Four, ask a roommate, loved one, or hired professional to occasionally sneak up behind you and slap the shit out of you. I'm pretty sure Proust used that method. Jane Austen, definitely. And Shakespeare, he practically invented it. Well, violence aside, I'd agree that I write better with someone else around. Left to my own devices, my mind tends to wander. Often to ESPN.com. I'm good alone, honestly. But let's get back to the point, which is that when Joe says it isn't fair to Kenneth to be stuck in such a small space while Joe writes, what he's really saying is that he needs his own space. A room of one's own, if you will. In the same interview, Joe goes on to say that he's thinking of leaving the tiny bedsit on Knoll Road and getting a house. He and Kenneth have talked about moving to Brighton, and Kenneth has even suggested they move to the London suburbs. Things have been unravelling since John Orton became Joe Orton, the successful playwright, and this idea of leaving London is clearly Kenneth's last-ditch effort to try to hold on to the partner he knows he's losing. Joe wants nothing to do with the suburbs, but the Brighton plan does appeal to him, as it includes keeping the London apartment as a pied à terre. While Kenneth might think that moving from London to London by the sea will be his way to keep Joe to himself, Joe in a letter to his friend Kenneth Williams explains otherwise. He writes that he'll stay in London and pop down on weekends. Clearly, they have very different ideas of their futures. Like many an insecure partner, Halliwell's fear of abandonment make him act out in ways that make Orton want to abandon him. The self-pitying and the fighting get worse, the threats of suicide become more and more frequent, and as he grows to believe that he is fundamentally unlovable, Kenneth is able to convince just about everyone else of that as well. Everyone, including the person who's always been his greatest defender, Joe. But even if you don't love me, Kenneth might say, you need me. This is one of his favorite refrains in their fights, that Joe needs him for his writing. And while it's not true, Kenneth does still play an important role in Joe's work. As soon as Orton gets back to London in July of 1967, he finishes his final, and in my opinion, best play, What the Butler Saw. It takes the farce he established in loot, and with the help of sexual harassment, incest, torture, cross-dressing, and Winston Churchill's penis, cranks it up to a fever pitch. 
There's a telling line in the diary that explains what the butler saw. It's from March 67, when, after seeing an article on The Diary of a Madman, Orton writes about how fashionable madness has become. It's the perennial fascination with watching lunatics. Let's look at mad people, at queer people. They have only to look in the mirrors. Kenneth H. said, in what the butler saw, you're writing about madness. Yes, I said, but there isn't a lunatic in sight, just doctors and nurses. Madness, or questioning definitions of madness and the institutions society has built to deal with it, is very much in vogue in the 1960s. The decade begins with Irving Goffman's groundbreaking work, Asylums, Foucault's Madness and Civilization, and Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And by 1967, the year Orton writes what the butler saw, the anti-psychiatry movement is born, and the battle for our mind's ability to think differently is raging. Orton's contribution is a play which shows how flimsy the line is between behavior that the state considers acceptable and sane, and that which it calls sick, mad, or criminal. It asks us to question the sanity of those who deem themselves capable of labeling others insane. What skeletons have you in your closet, dear doctor? The message is orchestrated ingeniously. The play manages to be both absolutely hilarious and profound social commentary as well. And the irony is that while there might not be a lunatic in sight on stage, there is one wandering around Joe as he writes. Kenneth helps with edits on the play, but an argument can be made that his biggest contribution to what the butler saw is in being the inspiration for Joe to focus his work on mental health. This would prove, in a roundabout way, Kenneth Wright when he claimed that Joe needed him for his writing. Unfortunately, like Joe's characters, whose fixed ideas about society make them oblivious to what's really going on, Orton himself is completely oblivious, perhaps willfully so, to the very dangerous kind of madness he's living beside. Soon, Kenneth's emotional crisis will reach its breaking point, and there will be nothing left to laugh about. That's next time on Penknife. Wednesday the 28th of June, last day in Tangier. Took yellow jersey into the bedroom. I'd taken too much cake, and so the sex, though good, went on too long. I was fucking for an hour. Yellow jersey very upset because I'm leaving. He doesn't believe I'll return. October seems so far off. Such a lot of things can happen. Penknife is created, written, and produced by Corey Eastwood, Ramona Stout, and me, Santiago Lemoine. Joe Orton is voiced by Lou Ellis. Special thanks in this episode to John Lahr, who both literally and figuratively wrote the book on Joe Orton. His biography, Prick Up Your Ears, and the Orton Diaries that he edited are the first two places to go to if you're interested in learning more about Orton and Halliwell. Penknife sound design, music, and all things audio are the work of Diego Sanchez of La Pianola Studio in Buenos Aires. The logo and all things visual have been made by Nelly Cuellar Torres. Flor Lopez designed our website, penknifepodcast.com, where you can find a full bibliography of the works we used in researching this season. And a very special thanks to Mr. Rico Benelli for letting us turn his spare bedroom into a recording studio. If you're liking what you're hearing and want to help us out, 
the best thing you can do right now is to rate and review Penknife on Apple Podcasts and to subscribe on whatever platform you're using to listen to us right now. And if you really like Penknife and want to hear more of it, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash penknife to support us. We'd hoped season two would be easier and cheaper to make than season one. But telling this story the way we thought it deserved to be told ended up being nearly as time-consuming and even more costly. We'd love to keep making pen life, but to do so, we really need your help. Even a cup of shrimpy things or two a month would go a long way. And regardless of whether or not you leave us a review or a few bucks, we thank you for listening.